Hi, I'm very excited to have one of the leading players in ESG and data for the new revolution in real estate and sustainability uh, that we're seeing sweeping the globe uh, on today's episode. Uh, Matt Ellis has started at CBRE and quickly carved out a name for himself as a specialist in energy data, leading him to set up Measurable in 2013, so coming up for 10 years. And it's been quite the success story, uh, growing to today's business, which employs 200 staff, measuring ESG data on more than 13 billion square feet of commercial real estate across 90 countries. He's also a great writer. The uh, From Green to ESG uh, book was my first introduction uh, to him. And uh, this is the first time we've met. Uh, hi, Matt. It's nice to speak to you. Pleased to be here, Paul. Likewise. Thank you. Uh, great job on the book, first of all. It's, uh, it's very honest with some very bold opinions on green certificates and, and that industry. Um, I really enjoyed it. Well, I'm glad that it found some use out there. Hopefully it's um, educational, if not provocative. That's good. And how's life as an author now? <laughs> it hasn't replaced my day job. We'll say that. Okay. Are we, can we expect book number two or is this it for a while? Oh, I think I'll take a break. And then when I come back and have something new to offer, I'll try to spool up another book. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, agreeing to be uh, on uh, on our PlayStech podcast today. Um, I thought it would be uh, fun to, to look at the reasons to be cheerful, as it were. So uh, it can be so difficult to stay positive. Uh, the more that we learn about the climate crisis, the more that we see extreme weather events, around the world, um, you can get consumed in the gloom and doom, um, and it can be hard to, to stay upbeat. Um, so I thought we'd, we'd talk about reasons to be optimistic and uh, maybe go through your top three. Um, what do you think about that idea? I think it sounds great, and I'm completely on uh, the same page with you, Paul, that there's actually a lot to be optimistic about, especially in this particular niche of property and sustainability. Um, our industry has done a lot of good work and it has gone um, largely missed, I think, in favor of things like, you know, Tesla and electrification of vehicles or maybe some other areas of the economy that have gotten more visibility. But uh, property tends to be maybe sometimes a bit boring, but it's incredibly progressive on sustainability. So I'm excited to talk about it with you. Okay, well, uh, let's dive straight in. What would be your, your number one uh, reason to be optimistic right now? I, th I think we're at a moment in time, you know, I've been in this business of real estate and sustainability now coming up on 15 years. And I remember when I started out as a, a broker at CBRE in the traditional side of the business um, and first poking and prodding at these issues of, of so-called green. And there was a lot of skepticism across the industry that was um, not just a shrug, but almost negatively received. And you fast forward to today, some decade and change later, and there is a broad consensus that's emerged in our industry that sustainability is not just correct and good for the business, um, but that we understand what it means, how we operate with those new sets of financial metrics, environmental social governance metrics, and put them to best use in our buildings and our portfolios. And so that radical change from um, cynicism and skepticism to a fulsome embrace and a real understanding of what this is as a financial imperative. Uh, I think that sets the, 
the foundation for incredible progress in the next decade to come. Okay, and and given the the very uncertain economic times that we're in, and certain countries, certain industries already in recession, um, others facing that on the horizon, that possibility later this year or into twenty three. Do you think that embrace that you talk about, that you know, corporate real estate has embraced sustainability? Will that grip hold on? Do you think if uh, companies fall into difficult times? It will not just hold, but it will tighten. And the history here is worth looking at. So go back to the global financial crisis, the great financial crisis, 2008, 2009, precipitated, of course, by uh, the real estate industry, that in that case on the residential side. And a lot of the discussion on sustainability at that time was looked at as, um, you know, about to walk off the cliff. We said, this will be the last we hear from all these green people in real estate. And it was exactly the opposite. 2008, 2009, and then the, the next couple of years up through 2012 were the golden era of green and specifically green certifications, things like Brium, Neighbors, uh, LEED, and a host of others around the world. And why is that happening or why did that happen? The answer is in tight markets, in confusing markets where there's a tremendous pressure to attract and retain tenants and attract capital. Sustainability had emerged as one of the differentiators that landlords could um, seize upon. And so that golden era from 2009 to 2012 of certification, let's fast forward again to the next financial crisis, the one precipitated by the pandemic. So here we are, 2019 or 20, it all blurs together, and the bottom is falling out. Everyone's going to work from home, and people are thinking that's the end of the office sector, among others. And what happened? Uh, sustainability moved from this conversation around green to ESG. It was looked at as a financial set of metrics and imperatives. The pillar of S, importantly, uh, was lifted up as a way for real estate ownership, um, landlords, operators to attract and retain those tenants by saying, we understand that health and well-being is an issue. We have a robust set of metrics and ways to think about this and ways to demonstrate objectively the security and um, safety of our buildings and properties. So here again, ESG emerged, or I said, probably just expanded its visibility and was a real way for the property industry to address the concerns of the time. And I think we can carry that theme forward now. So here we are again, right, 2022, talking about recession, inflation, and uh, war, and all of these calamities. Will sustainability survive? And the answer is yes, and it will thrive. It is one of the best ways for business to de-risk and to find incremental yield. And I think that's been proven out over the last decade and a half of these difficult financial situations. Okay, so that's that's a great first reason. It's it's a solid fundamental business priority um, for real estate. So, what would be your your second uh, reason to be optimistic? Well, look, I'm sitting here in the states. Um, the big news as of late was the climate legislation <laughs> masquerading as Inflation Reduction Act that was actually passed by um, Congress here, and that's you know 20 years, if not more, in the making to get a, a meaningful and substantive set of incentives out to decarbonize the American economy. That followed a whole set of robust rules across uh, the European Union, SFDR, the EU taxonomy, so SFDR, sustainable, sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulations. 
these sets of consistent um, ways to think about and to report, to calculate sustainability impact of business have now established this foundation in the financial ecosystem. We can talk the same language to each other, and that's going to really open up the opportunity to move from should we do this and how do we talk about it and what's the, the, the right metrics and what's the right way to report them. I think we're now seeing the end of that era of consternation and confusion to a more straightforward era of consistent global reporting. What does that mean? It means we're going to move from this period of, of sort of information gathering and voluntary reporting, um, and we're going to be able to redirect those resources to action. So that's a really important moment in time that we're at. We're moving from this information sort of data gathering period, head scratching, reporting, confusion, to clarity and, and action around decarbonization and health and well-being. What does that do for us? You're about to see, Paul, an unbelievable unlocking of capital to go virtuously to buildings to make them better, um, reward the best buildings through higher tenancy, better capital flows, better transaction prices. And as this all goes down, you're going to see landlords finally get rewarded for their investments in green. You're going to see occupiers finally have space that meets their um, reporting objectives and their operational needs. And you're going to see that be fairly ubiquitous across the two major real estate markets in the world, which are Europe and North America. So I really think the thing to celebrate here is a bit of a, a calming down of the confusion of the lack of consensus. We're moving to a regulated era. It sets a fair um, and consistent uh, set of rules for all businesses. And that's going to allow us to redirect these resources to real substantive improvement in buildings, which is better off for the business, better off for the customer. So it sounds like you're talking about carrot and stick, that it's not just the regulatory stick beating them. It's not just the incentives. It's it's a bit of everything. Well, that's, that's what the the Inflation Reduction Act in the States was predominantly just a set of carrots. It just distributed a whole bunch of incentives to uh, tilt buying decisions towards technologies that would help us decarbonize. It was very light on sticks. There was a rule around methane reduction. Um, there is a, a new tax on uh, corporations, a minimum tax to pay for the bill. But by and large, the, the direction um, that the bill took was to incent change in business expenditures towards more sustainable outcomes. So that's a, a very American response to the um, idea that, you know, sustainable is all bad and, and it's just a bunch of taxes and penalties. So obviously the Congress decided to work around that by saying, no, it's actually a bunch of incentives. Um, but that's basically right. You know, there's a lot of inducements now to reach for superior performance by way of sustainability. Um, and the laws are, are looking that way. There are obviously sticks, right? So think of another thing that happened in the U.S. market was the SEC's proposed rules around climate disclosure, specifically carbon and climate risk. So yeah, there are some sticks, there are some things that we're going to minimum have to do. But I think everyone's looking on the upside here, a way to outcompete and outperform. But do, do you think that the, um, the American government will really go for carbon tax in, in years to come? Hard to see it. <laughs> Track record is not so great there. Um, I, economists think it's the most efficient way. I don't. I don't doubt them. Um, but it just doesn't. It's not practicable. The, the, the political consensus isn't there. So I think that taxes and sticks are going to be the minority of what we do. The majority will be catering to the, 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 
the instincts of business, which is how do I lower my costs of capital? Sustainably has proven itself to be a very effective way of doing that. So-called green loans and green bonds are examples of this. Um, and how do I you know, generate more yield as a result? And greener buildings have proven themselves there as well. So that's the place to play ball. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so the third reason to be optimistic? Well, I give you a few more beyond three, but how about the fact that when we move from this kind of, you know, informational voluntary period of disclosures and, and metric gathering to this more regulated world. And that, as I was describing, Paul, it allows us to unlock a lot of resources to actually do something about this, to make the buildings better, to make the portfolios of real estate more resilient. You know what I think of when I, I hear that is jobs. I hear technology transformation. I think of the procurement, the way that we will think about what businesses we as real estate ownership will work with, uh, business, diverse businesses, businesses that have new types of solutions, including startups with new technologies. I think that's a radically cool thing. You're going to see investments flow to novel tech, uh, diverse businesses, marginalized businesses that can now provide solutions like rooftop solar install or um, technologies like measurement and verification of sustainability outcomes. And I think that that's going to help our digital transformation in the industry, which is broadly good, of course, uh, more efficient, uh, uh, more resilient uh, industry as a result. And I think there's going to be a lot of winners in the private sector. Um, and I think that's going to catalyze a, a great amount of innovation and um, economic rewards in the economy. So I just think there's a lot of winners to be had here as we go in this next phase. Yeah, I think that climate tech investment world is is really fascinating. Um, you look at people like Fifth Wall that are just raising so much money to to put you know VC support into into those startups that you allude to there. Um, but at the same time, I saw Fifth Wall speak at Cretech London earlier this year. I think it was Roloff was there, and um, he said that having more data software to measure energy in buildings is is pretty much useless it's just like giving um, a breathalyzer to an alcoholic that it doesn't change anything it's just measuring it and he was saying that they really want to invest in innovation around materials around construction concrete sand uh, those sorts of things what are your thoughts on on that i i think roloff's got the, the basic concept, right, but he missed how profound what he said really was. So the idea of putting a, an alcoholic on a breathalyzer didn't make them any more or less drunk. What it did is reveal where they were on that spectrum. And so we know what we need to do for the patient from there. And I think that that is often missed. There is no management without measurement, right? That so goes to cliche. You cannot manage what you do not measure. Yeah. Measurement is in of itself one of the most powerful things we can do to enable them, the outcomes that Roloff is aspiring to, whether they be new concrete or materials or other types of innovation. So I, I, I respectfully disagree with the bigger uh, message here or the conclusion, which is that no, the, the, the challenge in sustainability wasn't that we lacked better light bulbs or more efficient boilers and chillers. That is a myth propagated probably by the purveyors of those solutions. The challenge was that we could not measure sustainability objectively. It was a subjective art. The second we had a revolution in measurement, 
we unlocked everything down the food chain. There is nothing more important, respectfully, than measurement. If you have every building on some spectrum and we, of green and we know exactly where they are and why, it's like putting the MPGs on the window of a car when you go to buy it, at least here in the States. All of a sudden, capital can move and make better buying decisions. That's a very powerful concept that really has no bounds. Yeah, and, and I guess it, it is as profound as uh, the, the whole big picture argument around uh, even the existence of, of uh, climate change um, that sadly still some people grapple with, that it moves it from opinion into fact, into science. Um, and, you know, you can't argue with the measurement. There, there it is. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's about my book and the, the, this, the idea, the thesis behind the book is that we made this really rather revolutionary move from subjective measures of so-called green, which were about branding um, and marketing and positioning a product or company, to objective measures of sustainability, environmental, social. And when we did that, you, you had the enabling um, it's the efficient market hypothesis, right? We basically had all these externalities of business. We could not quantify them. We knew they were material. When we finally got our arms around it and codified that into a set of metrics, guess what happens? Markets can move. And I think that that's another thing is like you focus a lot or we as an industry focus a lot on new and novel technologies. And I really don't believe it for a second. What about the, the massive power of markets and capital markets? What if pension funds and sovereigns and endowments, the lifeblood of the real estate um, industry in terms of institutional investment could change its preferences and its costs because of transparency in markets. What if that were to be true? I don't care how many light bulbs you reinvent. You give me a several billion or a trillion bucks and in, in newly and better informed capital, that's going to change the world a lot faster than an individual light bulb will. Exactly. Information, transparency is at, uh, at the heart of, of good business. Um, you, you mentioned about, about jobs. I think that's such an interesting area of, of sort of real estate having to go back to university and, and all these people that started their careers not thinking they were going to have to become experts on energy monitoring and you know all the science around, around that and fabric first and some of these new concepts, um, let alone other skills they need around connectivity and you know it's, it's just such a transformational time to to be in the industry um and and you you talk as well about making buildings better uh, retrofit doesn't get mentioned enough in terms of the standing stock that we have of making that more energy efficient um who pays for that what, what are you seeing and hearing from your many clients and large corporates, landlords, investors, uh, developers, where, where do you think that is up to at the moment and who pays for retrofit? We all do. <laughs> it depends on where it's most visible, right? So the lack of retrofit and the carbon pollution, that's unnecessarily the result of poor performing buildings. And we all pay the consequence of that in the warming climate and dirty air and so forth, right? So when we talk about the economics of transforming the building stock, first thing to note is you're absolutely right, Paul. The, the, the ball game is in the existing building. Okay, respectfully, not new construction. Fewer than 1% of buildings are constructed in a given year. Anyone in Europe knows this really well, right? You walk around and you look at a lot of really old, if not ancient buildings. They're going to be here for a long time. 
And we need to take that building stock and move it to a different level of performance to the best of that individual building's potential. Um, no, the Coliseum in Rome isn't going to be a gleaming skyscraper, you know, lead gold or lead platinum. Um, <laughs> it has a certain theoretical potential of green that is appropriate. What we need to do now that we have measurement is find and move the stock to that um, new level. Who pays for that? We as a public do by virtue of regulation and incentives. We were talking earlier about uh, the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and the incentives set out to procure and implement decarbonization technologies, among other things, and efficiency technologies broadly. The landlord does, of course, is the owner of that box with the capital to transform it and the operating control to transform it. And then interestingly, the occupier of that space. So what happens, we've, I'm sure you've heard this, Paul, the idea of that split incentive. It's this nasty problem that occurs within lease structures around the world where there are different levels of incentive to change those buildings in terms of who pays and who receives the benefit. Okay. Here in the States, we have this idea of a triple net lease, um, which typically you'll see in like an industrial setting. And that means that if the landlord were to go and make investments to improve that building, the benefits might accrue in terms of lower energy costs to the tenant. So we need to continue to work on this core relationship between um, service provider, landlord, and customer, tenant, occupier. And we need to make sure that the costs and the benefits of the building stock transformation are equitably shared. If as a landlord, I'm going to put a dollar into rooftop solar and it's going to save me, you know, uh, 10 cents over the course of the year. Do I divvy that up through the lease? Uh, do I pass it through the cost a little bit and split it there? Now, how are those um, costs and benefits shared? And I think that's a place that's worth a lot more. It's a little bit dull, I admit, um, but as a former broker, I think that sometimes it's those dull and boring corners of the business that are the most revolutionary. And that's one example. Okay. And, and just before we before we wrap, it's been, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you, Matt. Um, but just give us a flavor of what the clients are asking for and what's really keeping them awake at night when, when you're sitting across the, the meeting table from them at the moment. What's the sort of burning issue? You've got two cohorts. The first cohort is the newly or freshly engaged real estate organization who is now waking up to the urgency to measure, manage, and report on ESG. Um, there are no systems, there's no technology, there's probably not even a professional or subject matter expert in that type of organization. These tend to be medium-sized, say, $2 billion, $3 billion in asset value and down towards your mom and pops. But what they're all feeling now is the rising pressure of regulation and investor preference and customer preference. So that type of, that cohort needs the basic toolkit uh, to get their arms around ESG. And I, I kind of refer to that colloquially as data competency. We, just like we need to know how many buildings have we got and what's the rental income coming from them and you know, what's the TI allowances that we're going to be able to uh, afford and, and put to work at that portfolio. Those types of things are quantified. We need to get everyone to a set of a level of competency around ESG that doesn't intimidate, scare, or unduly burden these small to medium-sized uh, real estate organizations. Right. Then you've got the second cohort. 
this is Nuveen, this is Boston Properties, this is Credit Suisse and Allianz and CBRE and so forth. These major um, 5, 10, and 50 billion type portfolios of real estate. They've made dramatic progress around this first set of challenges of measurement and competency. What they're doing now, decarbonization. So while sustainability or ESG includes these three pillars, governance has been largely addressed for public entities and privates have done a better and better job here of setting incentives for executives and, and portfolio transformation. Um, the S pillar has been a, a big boost because of the pandemic and healthy buildings have gotten their uh, visibility that they deserve. Nonetheless, they still take a backseat to E, big E, climate resilience, carbon reduction. And that is where you're going to see sophisticated owners investing in not so much novel, but market-ready technologies to improve the operating performance of the buildings. Sometimes simply just through asset optimization and, and you know, finding the, the low-hanging fruit. There's still so much of that even in these big portfolios. So two different stories, a tale of two cities, if you will, right? The, 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 the small players who are coming into the, the regime of ESG, the big guys who have already gotten it and are now making movements to act and decarbonize. And I think that's where you'll see a lot of the, the fun work being done. Wonderful. Thank you for that. I think how real estate organizations manage change, uh, the sort of internal management consultancy type piece, uh, I think is one of the, the great subplots of the whole real estate innovation revolution. Um, I think it's so difficult uh, to, to get change and, and to get it rapidly and profoundly through through companies. Uh, so any insight on that, I think, is really valuable for people to take away and compare their own experiences and, and learn and relate to. Um, so thank you for, for sharing. Um, and just, just finally, in, in terms of the response from the tech providers and su suppliers, um, when you talk about large companies um, decarbonizing and looking for, uh, for, for ready to implement um, tools and systems, are, are they there? Do they exist? I, I think you're talking to one example of them, right? I think measurable, you put out a statistic about us of 13 billion square feet, 90 countries. It's the only scaled global platform for this type of ESG management. Um, so yes, they totally exist. And you can look at other niches or use cases and see the rise of comparable champion um, platforms and not just within ESG I'm talking about things like leasing and market intelligence look at VTS um, I think they're well past us at this point in terms of international and square footage of adoption um, and a whole set of other technologies that have started to reach some scale so the the the, the challenge will be this we, you know, so you brought up fifth wall, right? These are, there's a whole host of venture capitalists investing in new upstart technologies. I think what I've seen is the period, at least with ESG for experimentation, point solutions, um, building by building, what works over here, will that work over in the next state or the next country? There's less and less appetite for that there is the recognition that this phenomenon of ESG is moving so fast to regulation, has moved so fast, that I think you're going to see a small set of major platforms um, take the market momentum. And I think you'll see consolidation 
around those platforms. Um, there just isn't the risk tolerance or the digital capacity to take on too many different apps for too many different things, especially when the urgency is so high. So I, I think that's a bit of a good news, bad news. Good news is, as a real estate owner, you're going to have more obvious buying decisions to make. Trusted parties have been around for like us a decade um, that can meet the moment. And I think the bad news is for the innovators, you're going to have to figure out how to play in that landscape. How do you add value to platforms um, that have emerged? Um, I think the era to be you know, truly disruptive in, say, a, as a point solution, um, that's going to be harder as the uh, market momentum goes by you. Yeah, I, I guess that's, that's a logical and uh, you know, perfectly fine place to be in terms of a maturing tech scene. Um, and a great point, throwing the eye forward with a bit of bit of future gazing there to uh, to finish on. Um, Matt Ellis, founder and CEO of Measurable, I really enjoyed that. Thank you for joining us today. Paul, it was such a pleasure. Thank you for your work.